Welcome to the Entrepreneur Academy with your hosts, Nick Dutton of Engage Finance and James Cross from Crossover Property on this episode of the Entrepreneur Academy. It's a psychological thing, isn't it? Because, you know, if you go and buy a car, it's 20 grand. You're expecting it to be 20 grand, so it's fine. But then you go and buy something online that's three quid and then the postage is 199. You're like, whoa, 199? Whoa, whoa, where's that come from? But now, here are your hosts, Nick and James. Hi and welcome everyone to another episode of the Entrepreneur Academy with both myself and Jim. Hello everyone. We are live on Zoom again. The COVID outbreak continues and we have to bring technology into our uh, everyday lives, which is uh, something new for for us, but we're kind of getting used to it now. It's great when it works, not so good when it doesn't work. So what, what have you been up to then recently, Jim? Since it's been about, I don't know, probably about three, four weeks since we last recorded one. Well, it's been a very, very busy uh, last couple of weeks. We've we've yeah. just um, just finished off a project that finished Monday actually uh, for a client for supported living. Quite a rushed job for them because they had quite tight deadlines. A couple more projects that are due to finish or were all due to finish end of August, which are all slipping back a little bit because of the sort of post COVID delays and things. So. A little bit frustrating and then more recently we've just uh well literally as of yesterday hired a new uh site manager on trial oh you got one yeah nice. yeah so we've we've been interviewing quite a few people um had a few more interviews yesterday um, and yeah. we've taken a guy on for a trial for august and to be honest we'll probably take him on full time but just thought i'd give him a trial to start off with that will help a lot with with uh with keeping sites running well and smooth i remember the update we did in probably like april wasn't it when we were like all doom and gloom, businesses gone quiet. Well, no, for you, it didn't really seem to go that too quiet, did it? But like, I know you'd sort of held back on maybe taking on new staff and stuff like that. Yeah, we, we were slowed down a little bit. I think uh, it, it, it's pretty mental with how busy everyone is in, in the construction industry. All the trades are very busy. We're extremely, we're, we're just trying to build the team up and the capacity. Um, even before we take any more work on with struggling to get people keeping good quality people but just trying to build on that as well because we've got a lot of other investors a lot of people asking us to do jobs and for them you know end of this year or the next month or two and and we're saying well yes we can but we are absolutely random we've got three projects finishing over the next four to six weeks we need to get them done first Mm -hmm. then we can start new stuff we're we're sort of similar really in in the fact that you know we were obviously quite concerned that I think every business was like concerned about where it was going, whether it was ever going to pick back up. I think a lot of us kind of thought that it wouldn't be this year, would it? That it would be picking back up. It would be sort of next year. But it seems to almost kind of had a light light switch kind of effect in the fact that lockdown was eased a little bit and it just seems to have gone a bit crazy, really. We're probably due a second wave of actually getting busier because obviously Leicester was locked down, wasn't it? On like a a small lockdown in that area and I don't know if, I don't actually know if it's lifted yet or not but for us I know a lot of our Leicester investors just stopped again because they couldn't do viewings and things like that um, so I think I feel like we could have another sort of influx of new business once that starts to pick up again we haven't actually done any jobs in Leicester yet but you know obviously I think you know I know a few people in Leicester like yourself and it's yeah things have have slowed down a lot um I mean, obviously being Nottingham-based, it's, it's gone mental in Nottingham. What we've seen in the past, and we've actually discussed it on this podcast, is everyone's always looking for an excuse of not to do something. It's like, oh, it's Christmas, or oh, it's summer, I'm going on a summer holiday. And it was like now is like the perfect time to be like, oh, it's 
coronavirus. I'm not. I'm not going to do it now. But it doesn't seem to be that way. I think a lot of people have actually had enough time to sit down and, and plan everything and get in a strong position to be ready to go again. Especially those businesses that you know have thought ahead about things and not just bury their head in the sand a little bit as well. Last time we talked about buy, refurbish, refinance, which is obviously quite a big strategy at the moment. It was before um, because something we're seeing is it might be a, f- a funny market for flips, although. You know, we'll talk about that another time. But it seems to that seems to have been going a bit. I don't know. It's, well, how buoyant the market is, it's almost like a flip could work at the moment. It could work now if you've got a house towards the end of a refurb or one that's about ready to sell. Yeah, you, you're probably timing it bang on right. Um, mm-hmm. My worry would be if you're trying to, you know, if you're going into a flipping strategy where you, you know, by the time you brought a house gone through conveyancing, brought it and done it up and got it back on the market, mm-hmm. the market probably would have, would have, would have dipped by then. Um, yeah. That would be my only concern. And I, I think for me, I'd be a little bit nervous about, you know, just going to buy a house and flip it if you didn't have a, a second, you know, exit strategy on it. But houses are selling really well from what I'm seeing at the minute. They're, re- you know, they're selling quickly. People want to buy. Um, and there's a lot of, you know, a lot of availability. It's just unpredictable. You know, we could be having this discussion in, February and it could be absolutely mental again or it could be dead it just don't know no but no one, no one knows no one knows but obviously if you've seen the news now we are apparently officially into a recession as well that's I suppose another thing to look at and, and factor in and it, it is a true recession as much as a recession you know terms are but obviously with three months with most things out of business that yeah of course we're going to have a, a decline in the economy and things are going to slow yeah. down um yeah. But I think that that will come out of that in the next quarter because how busy everything is now, everyone's making up for it. So yeah, last time we just obviously we chatted about buy, refurbish, refinance, and and really what we're going to chat about today is another strategy that's been extremely popular for a while now, and and you know one that's shouted about quite a lot in the property circles, which is commercial conversions, and um, and to be honest, it's just a it's just another part of buy refurbish refinance really isn't it because it's still the same process it's just a different property style and perhaps on a bigger scale bigger numbers for me commercial conversions are are more exciting um they are challenging don't get me wrong they have uh they're probably one of the hardest things you can almost do i think depending on the scale of uh, the conversion project but um every single one you do is got a difference to it whereas you know, I've done a few of the small buy-to-let refurbs and they're all pretty much the same. There's not really yeah. much difference. Whereas commercial conversions, there's a lot of things to get right and a lot of things that can go wrong. And you always uncover something new that you weren't quite you know, aware of having to come up with before. The theory behind it is there tends to be more uh, wiggle room if things do go wrong. Yeah, definitely. I, I mean, my, my kind of consensus with commercial conversions is there's, there's a lot more uplifting value a lot mm. more kind of equity built in it. You can add the extra value because you're changing so much of the structure. There's a lot more meat on the bone for it. And, you know, a, a, a few thousand pounds on a commercial conversion project doesn't really make a difference. Whereas on a, you know, a 10 grand buy to let refurb makes a huge difference. Yeah. It, it's, it's crazy some of the stuff I look at. We, I mean, we've just spent 16 grand to get new water connections. And I'm like, 16 grand's a lot of money, but when it's it's, a small bit in a, in a larger puzzle, it, you don't yeah. really think twice about it. It's a psychological thing, isn't it? Because 
you know, if you go and buy a car and it's like it's 20 grand, but you just you're expecting it to be 20 grand, so it's fine because you've you've sort of in your head you've accepted that's what it is. But then you go and buy something online that's three quid, and then the postage is one ninety nine. You're like, whoa, one ninety nine? Whoa, whoa, where's that come from? And I always put them two together. It's just it's a psychological thing that actually you've just got to overcome and accept. Yeah, definitely. And and I see the same. Even you know, in what you said, but into property when you're buying and negotiating a property, where you know we've had it where we're buying a sixty grand house and you're fighting for. The, you know, yeah. to try and negotiate on a price, even to the point where, you, you know, you, you change it by a few hundred quid, you know, so you might go 59,500 because um, that will help you make yeah, a difference. Yeah. Whereas, you know, if someone's selling, I saw this recently, if someone's selling a 1.4 million pound house, they'll knock a hundred grand off the house with without really batting an eyelid. And you stop and think, you think, well, hang on a minute, a hundred grand is a hell of a lot of money, but you just discount your house. Well, it's all proportionate to the value. It's the same with, commercial conversions um, and, the, and the size and the value they have as well. So let's let's talk about similar steps really to the Bari Fabricary Finance in, in the fact that we'll just move it onto a commercial. So there's obviously certain types of commercial properties that lend themselves and work well for a commercial conversion. Anyone that's sat there thinking, oh, let's go and buy a, a thousand square foot warehouse and convert it to a residential, it's, I mean, you know, it's not that kind of thing. But it's um, what what sort of things do you look for in a commercial property that make it viable from a building point of view to think okay that that could work as a residential? Yeah, I, th- I think um, well, I think there's a, there's a few key things really. One of them is obviously you're not going to really want to convert a, a really nice new commercial building into a residential because it's not really going to be viable for the price that 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 stacks at you know the very classic one people seem to be doing is pub conversions so old pubs that are no longer needed that can't be used as a viable business Mm -hmm. um, and convert them to residential either hmos studio flats or you know bigger apartments generally speaking um you have to be a little bit you have to be a little bit careful with with pubs and the councils because uh, they may or may not see them as community assets, um, you know, dependent, you know, or viable businesses. If it's something that just shut down last month and they can't get a tenant or they're, or they're selling it as a pub opportunity and want to buy it for residential, the council will probably not be very happy with you converting that to residential um, right. because it's still technically a viable asset and a community yeah. asset. You know, yeah. if you've got something that's been empty for five, ten years and, you know, you've got, um, you know, drug problems in there or, or you know, people um, squatting or whatever it may be and, you know, it's, it, and it's on a residential area anyway, they'll probably be happy with you converting that. Pub, pubs are a big one. We're doing one which was an old social club, which mm. um, is sort of a pub years ago because it's got a cellar with a few barrels, but it was for all intents and purposes a social club. Um We've also got one we're doing, which is an old nightclub. Um, but again, many, many, many years ago, that was also a public house. Um, so, because there's an old cellar with all the barrels down there, and there's a lot of history to that building, which is actually what well, I, I find really exciting because you can trace back what it used to be like and kind of bring it back to its yeah. sort of former glory. Um, I'm trying to think what else we're doing at an old bank. Um, at the minute, so obviously a lot of banks don't always have as many, you know, physical premises anymore. 
so the viability and, and obviously they have a certain shape and size to those buildings so again this one's going to be an exciting challenge because there's a the old bank vault in there which is not a small not a small like tiny little one it's the size of probably you know someone's flat um little studio flat so again that comes with an extra challenge that i've never had to deal with but you know you work through it with how swamped the market is with HMOs and stuff like that, where people are trying to find ways of standing out as their HMOs better than others, I can imagine the, the commercial quirks and features and the history and the story behind it actually adds quite a lot of value to a tenant. You know, they're like, oh, okay, this is my HMO room and it, it's in an old bank. You know, they, it adds quite a lot of, 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 again, psychological value to it compared to necessarily monetary value. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's a bit more exciting. It, it's um, and you can because you, you've got maybe a little bit more money to play with as well on on the conversion costs. You can kind yeah. of go a bit more creative on on the end finish and the end look of the property. Um, mm. You know, I mean, stuff I'd I'd want to be looking at doing would be to create, you know, if you can, a bigger communal space so it's a bit more friendly, uh, a yeah. bit of out, a nice outdoor space, um, mm-hmm. and just make it for a bit more homely. You know, for the size of the building, yes, but more of a community feel about it. I've seen a few people do kind of like um, co-working spaces as well within the bigger HMOs they've been doing, um, which I like and is great. But, you know, when you're doing like a six-bed HMO that was an old house, you just do not have the space or the capacity or, or the money to start doing those tweaks. You're really trying to stretch it out to get more rooms than necessarily that yeah. added space because that increases the, the rental value. Yeah, you just care about rooms. Whereas on the bigger ones, rooms are important, yes, but then you start thinking more about amenity space and you know yeah. what's the livability of that house going to be like. Because if you're doing a 12-bed HMO, for example, yes, you can stick 12 bedrooms there and a kitchen and a little bit of a living room, but you've got to think there's going to be 12 different people in there, different types of characters, how they're all going to interact in that house. Um, you know, and you could probably have like a, a washing machine and a dryer and stuff within the kitchen area, but is that going to be practical for everyone to be doing their washing in the kitchen? Yeah. So yeah. you start thinking, well, I'm going to have a separate utility room and, you know, even like a games room in some places or just another utility. Um, I've even seen it where people have had two kitchens, two separate kitchens in, in you know, yeah. different parts of the building. Um, so you start thinking about these all, all these things and how the building works for the kind of what you want it to look like. The thing I've always thought, and you know, a lot of people call them commercial conversions, but realistically, yeah, you are converting it from commercial to residential, but but nine times out of ten, it's still going to be more of a commercial style unit, isn't it? At the end, most of these yeah. are big properties and will turn into you know easily seven bed plus which becomes more of like a commercial property anyway it's going to be commercially held by an investor whatever happens and you know we we always have the the debate and talk about commercial valuations on hmos anyway but if it is a commercial building you converted and it's a large size it is quite obviously a commercial product as well yeah, um, absolutely. You know, so there's no real arguing on that side. I don't think you could ever really convert a commercial building into a traditional house, or unless you maybe have seen no. it. I heard a story about someone convert a another pub um, into a massive, great big house, um, really? and I thought that house must be absolutely ginormous, mm-hmm. and it must be in the right location as well, because you know you think 
where pubs are located sometimes is it somewhere you want that size of house to live in usually not the only time i would suggest that probably happens is if you knock the pub down and then start again as land yeah, rather than actually putting right. it within the, the pub itself yeah i have seen that as well actually um mm. knocking down pubs and then you know rebuilding new builds and then you're in the realms of doing new builds um so there is you know there's, there's there's so many different ways to skin a cat in these types of things some pubs restaurants that sort of stuff the location would just wouldn't work for a residential but the, it tends to be the um you know old pubs that are in residential areas doesn't it sort of uh, rural type properties yeah. um is that something you found what about the high street is there going to be opportunities there to convert obviously the high street is dying or dead even is there going to be opportunities there do you see it or do you think it's still too commercialized i think i think there's a there's a mixture depending on where where you are um i mean for example we've had it in one high street where the main market square and the high street yes is a bit more vibrant but then you've got a lot of the you know shops that are further out from the town center and if you look down the road and see a lot of stuff that's just empty or too let, you've got a strong yeah. case to convert it to residential. Yeah. Um, you know, you look at some of the laws coming out about permitted development and relaxing planning for converting these things that, you know, the retail, if you've got something bang smack in the city centre or something, and I mean like really central, you're, you're, you've got to, you're going to have to keep some sort of commercial element because they just won't let you change it i don't think for for the time being but if it's if it's slightly further out and it's not really viable as a shop or um a commercial unit for whatever that case may be you've got a you know a stronger cause than to go to the council and say yeah you know it's not viable as commercial we want to convert it to residential the problem is um you know a, a commercial street might be struggling and like you say there's there's going to be two let signs on all of them and there's no demand for it but if you're the first to do it and you've just got one in the middle of a commercial street that you've converted to residential a value is just going to go out and be like whoa what's happened here despite whether planning is granted or not it's yeah. still the it's still the the monetary aspect they're just going to be like you know this just looks daft the nightclub is is um quite centralized isn't it in town but like you said it's not there's not demand for commercial units nearby and it's there's quite a lot of residential nearby as well isn't there yeah there's, there's a little bit here and there i mean you have got a row of shops which i think two or three are at least empty at the minute and they're trying to let out and they can't um yeah. and the size of that commercial building as well that you're not going to get someone to go and run a, a nightclub or a pub or anything like that back in that building because it's definitely not viable it's been empty for three or four years and they, they haven't been able to let it and to split it into different commercial units again isn't viable for the frontage because it's in conservation area mm -hmm. whereas you know converting to flats so the building lends itself really well to it the council do actually want housing because they're short of housing um so it's a win-win and we also actually just found out that the property next door which is a similar style building in a way, uh, has just got planning approved to convert all that into apartments as well. We're in we, you know, quite a strong position to know that it's going to work. Um, yeah. you know, originally, we actually did think, well, maybe we'll keep the ground floor and try and split it into two retail units, but um, we, in the end, just said scrap that and have it all residential. I think another aspect from that point of view, it made the funding difficult, didn't it? You know as well as I do from the funding side that to fund that with a commercial element in this market and the way 
valuers and lenders are looking at the risk of commercial, it's yeah. much harder to do that, whereas it is a full residential scheme. So yeah. if that's where valuers and lenders are looking, obviously the council with the planning, you know, and what they want to do is another story, but it, it's certainly something to take into account for people. Just before we sort of go into the process around the planning, because obviously that's a big thing, but would you necessarily recommend for someone to jump straight into commercial conversions? Definitely not. I mean, there's there's two ways you can kind of do it is is work on your own and work your way up towards these things, you know, starting off in small refurbs, slightly heavier refurbs, and then take on a small commercial conversion. Or, you know, if it if it is something you've you've never wanna you've never done but want to get on with something work with someone who's experienced in doing them and, and yeah. work closely with them. Um, that's the other way to do it is, is, is just work with someone who's got the experience of, of doing these size of projects and, and mm. knows the in, in intricacies of them. Um, mm. Don't just go and buy, buy something that you'll get it through planning and then convert it. Cause it's not an easy, you know, you know, it's not yeah. an easy job to do that. Talk to us about that stage then, because obviously there's going to be, or, you know, from from a someone that's never done it before, their initial thought is there's going to be a massive risk of me getting buying this commercial property and planning never be granted. But there's ways around, obviously, before you agree to buy it, there's going to be planning in place and things like that. So, what? How would you take the stages when you're looking at a commercial conversion? Yeah. So there are. I mean, don't get me wrong. You can buy commercial conversion projects that have already got planning, which we are doing at the minute which is great because we know exactly what we're going to do to the property. We've yeah. got an exit lined up, so it's fairly, it's fairly straightforward. Um, if you're assessing a building as it is and thinking, well, what can I actually convert to, you know, it to? Um, yeah. I would say for sure there's two things you need to take into account to do your kind of feasibility study, and that's looking at you know, your GDV, the, the costs, bill costs, professional fees, and then what you can offer after your kind of equity or profit in the deal, you're going to have to get involved at some point in architect to work out what you can fit in that space. Um, You know, without going too high level, you want to work out what is the square meterage in the floor space as it stands and what can you achieve in there? So you can try and you can try and work with people and get this done for free. But to be honest with you, I, I'm in the position where my, with working my architect, I actually am more than happy to pay him a small amount of money to do a quick feasibility study just to, you know, sketch, get some basic floor plan and sketch yeah. out going, well, there's, there's about nine flats you can fit in here. So, you yeah. know, there's going to be roughly nine flats in there. So you can start doing a, a study together on with it. That's worth its weight in gold, isn't it, really? Uh, absolutely. I mean, if you've got the skills to do it yourself, great, do it yourself. But... You know, there's, there's certain things you have to take into account of what you can fit in. You know, you've got to make sure that the, the enough windows are right. He'll, you know, he'll look at the structure of the building as well to make sure you're not removing a massive, great big supporting wall for no reason. Plus one side is working out the space you're working with. Um, the other side is the planning side of it and what you can and can't do with planning and how favourable that is. And again, my planning consultant, we've got, several things we're doing with him so i can he's more than happy for me to ping him over um a property and he'll he'll give me a bit of a, a paragraph or two of any major things that he can see that may flag up the council that we can and can't do yeah. um which is great but again you know if you're new to it use you know work with someone who's got a relationship with a planning consultant or engage with planning consultants but 
what I would say is because I've had it myself is don't expect anything decent to come back for free all the time because you might get that once but then you go to another deal they go well what's happening to this other one I'm just giving you free information here yeah, exactly. um, you know it's, it's one of those and I'd always say that you know I mean I've spent um, 500 quid a thousand pounds to get a deal analysed so I can start negotiating on it, it may have not gone anywhere but yeah. the level of those deals you're going to have to spend a bit of that money to get those deals going through and get a secure kind of exit or a, a better plan to work out what you're negotiating on rather than going in blind. And if you do go in blind, it's going to cost you thousands anyway in, in mistake. Exactly. I'd rather pay a few hundred quid or a grand or whatever it may be to analyse a deal properly at the beginning rather than going in something blind and losing way, way, way more than that. A commercial property comes on the market and you go and do your initial viewing, there's no planning on it. Talk us through the stages of, of that. If I've seen the property and got a kind of idea of it, I've spoken to the architect, got a feasibility study done, uh, or I worked out kind of what I can fit in that property, and I know the planning's reasonable. My next stage, it just it would come down to probably negotiation. I'd probably have a, you know, and the same as I would in any deal, I'd analyse what the property worth at the end of it, how much it's going to cost to build, um, and then you know, what I can kind of offer and what, what you know, what the purchase price should be. Um, okay. The thing people always, always will get, you know, um, pepped up about and that will change massively is, is how much is going to cost to actually do the project. Because um, I get asked that all the time and it's, you know, some people go on, well, there's a price per square meter for a refurb. Some go, well, it's, it's you know, 50 grand a flat or whatever they'll say. Um, yeah. you, you're almost guessing all the time because you've got no real secure plans and, and you know specifications you're working to um yeah. so again you could speak to people who've done those style of projects and get a bit of an idea of of what these things have cost them um you can engage with builders to kind of get an idea from them but again they will only be able to give you a very ballpark idea yeah, um, yeah. you know that's that's one of the big things if you actually want to get a more serious look into it and you're going on a slightly bigger project um, and you've got proper plans to work to, pay uh, a QS, which if anyone doesn't know is a quantity surveyor, who will run through the whole project for you, itemize everything in that build, and then give you probably a better estimate than anyone else would. You will have to pay for it, but it's worth its weight in gold if you're seriously looking at a deal. You know, we get asked, oh, what, what's that going to cost me? Here's a floor plan. And I go, well, I, I don't know. I, I don't know what structure we're putting in. I don't know what specification we're doing. I don't know if the floors are dropping or staying. And there's all these things that are up for grabs. But, um, you know, a QA and, and you, we'd spend hours having to go through it. Whereas if a QS does it, you've got an independent report and they're experienced in that as a professional. Um, I suppose also they have no sort of psychological attachment to the property either sometimes when you go and view a property you're automatically like this is the one i really want it and therefore i'm going to make the build costs it might be 120 but i'm going to say 110 because that makes it work on my spreadsheet whereas they go in and they don't give a shit who owns the property or whether it works or not they're just going to go no nah, it's going to cost 120k exactly right and i've seen it both ways with people i've seen people who've done like a you know stuck in a spreadsheet done a formula and go well it's um, you know, a thousand square meter building or whatever, and they've gone, well, it's X amount per square meter to, to, to refurb it or, or to convert it. 
and it's come out at a ridiculously high cost. And I, I just go there just from experience. So well, it's not going to cost you that much. I know they're, they're not cheap, these conversions, but it's not going to cost you that much money. And they go, yes, it will. And I, why will it? And they go, well, it's my spreadsheet. So I go, yeah. <laughs> I go okay, yeah, yeah. fair enough. Then, then you're right. You have people as well who go, actually, no, I'll, I'll, I'll be able to knock this down. I'll be able to knock that down. I won't have to pay that much for that profession. I won't be able to do that. And I, I can bring the cost down. I guess you probably can, but it's going to still cost you that at the end of it by the time you've faffed around and had time delays and had X, Y, Z delays. And, yeah. you know, it, it, it's one of those. But it, you're never, ever going to perfectly get a price right for a commercial conversion unless you've got full building, full building control specifications, you've got construction detailing if you need it, you've got structure engineers involved, the QS involved, and you've got a contract with a builder who's delivering at that price with that specification of works. And then you then you, then you know your build costs. But even yeah. still, you might have additionals that come on throughout the project. That's what we've talked about before. I mean, with refurbs and conversion, there's always something that crops up. And I suppose there's probably more so on a commercial property. I mean, one big thing on commercial properties that people kind of sometimes don't realise or forget about is um, on, on a house, for example, you're refurbing it, the, the main feeds of you know, your water, gas, electric are all going to stay the same. On a commercial building, you usually have to put new supplies in for your water, gas and electric and then new meters in for all the, if you have having flats, separate meters for every flat. Um, and they cost thousands. They cost thousands. If you don't account for it, you knacker yourself later down the line. Why is that though? It's just what it is. Um, yeah. You know, for example, we've had a, um, a right backwards and forwards for months now with Western Power about getting supplies for five flats um, to the point where they wanted to go to rear access around a property and, dig, and we had to dig it all up and they put five new feeds in. And in the end, we've managed to work it. They can come around the front of the property and we run it through the floor. Um, but if you didn't account for that, you would end up probably paying an extra 10 grand just for five feeds. And it's not just the, the cost, it's the time as well. They can take several months to book the work in for you. If you're lucky, it could be a few weeks. If you're unlucky, it's months. Um, so it's usually one of the first things you want to do when you, before you get on the site it, to get that done, basically, to get them booked yeah. in and know what you're doing utilities and get them going. So it's the same on new builds as well, but conversion projects, you can argue, are actually probably more hard, harder to do because you've got an existing building to work with and try and get supplies in. Yeah. Um, you, you can also check um, the one benefit, though, that on, on commercial properties, they especially like pubs and stuff, they usually have three-phase power. They usually have a big gas supply. Um, so a lot of those you can tap off, whereas some properties don't have that equipped or they may not have gas for example so you need to get if you want gas you got to get a new gas feed we're doing a um, flat conversion without any gas at all we're just doing it with uh, electric and water because it's just not worth spending the money to get gas supplies in would that mean you change your power team for that type of project compared to like a normal residential or is it pretty much staying the same um definitely different for me um I'd say you, you can have people who do both, but generally the people who do the small refurbs, it's usually one or two people or a one-man band, multi-skilled kind of um, people on the sites. Um, yeah. But on bigger projects, I mean, we have, for example, we might have three or four joiners who are just specializing in joinery on that project. And then we have, you know, a plumbing team and, you know, you have multiple electricians working on the same site where, you know, so... 
I think I think there are. I'd want to know everyone who's done projects to that similarity before, because even on the electrics, for example, you're not just rewiring a house; uh, you're having to put um, on a flat conversion a landlord supply in, so they have a landlord has a separate supply for the communal areas and the fire alarm, and then you have each individual flat has its own fire alarm system and panels, and then you might have to put smoke ventilations in. We've got a smoke window in a, in a loft at the minute as well, so. When there's a fire, this big vent opens in a roof to let all the smoke out of the staircases, um, which has been a nightmare because that's part of builder control and it came not at the beginning of the project, you know, a bit further in and we've had to wire that in and put it in the roof as well. So um, there's a lot of extra things and if, okay, it can be done, but if people haven't seen that or, or thought about it, you can catch yourself out quite badly. With the commercial, can't you claim stuff back as well? can put a claim in for all like the capital allowances capital allowances that's it yes you can um i haven't actually successfully managed to do any capital allowance claim yet because the nightclub we bought we were supposed to but it was the way we brought it we weren't actually able to allow to claim capital allowances back because we brought it in pension we're always backwards and forwards but basically capital allowances allows um, you have to have a capital allowance specialist surveyor go in and assess the building. Um, it's more for things like fixtures and, and fittings of the building. Um, they'll assign a value to that and you can claim that value back um, to reduce your tax bill. Um, so basically offset it against your tax. Um, yeah. uh, so in a nutshell, I'm not the best at explaining it, but it's definitely something to look into and speak to a professional about if you do a commercial building and get um, a specialist to go in, assess the building and value it. They usually take a percentage of that of that value. So you're not actually losing right. anything, you're only gaining something. Right. Some people will charge you for it, but I think the one we use, um, they'll take it all on, get all the details done, um, put a value to it, and then they just take a part of that value back. One of the other things as well, on commercial conversion projects that people may or may not know about, um, if you're doing HMO conversions, they probably do, but um, your builders should charge you 5% reduced VAT, not 20%. Most people at this kind of level would know anyway, um, but that's a bonus. We There's also, you can, which we are doing one project, claiming back, well, charging out 0% VAT because it's not been in use or registered for over, I think it's 10 years, but please double check yeah. it. Um, yeah. It's been an empty storage above a shop, so we're converting to flats. But because it's never been in use, we've proved there's never been any council tax bill. No, no one registered at the building apart from the shop, so we are allowed to um, charge it out zero percent VAT, which is interesting. Good for the, it doesn't yeah. make a difference to us, but it you know for the client, an extra five percent yeah, yeah. off makes a big difference. These are all little things that. Um, come with experience and learn, don't you? And that's a, that's the other good good part of the um, property networking. It's not something you can just sort of type in on Google and find the answers for. It's more who you know and, and that that sort of sector. But obviously, you just mentioned then about the SaaS um, and, and buying it in a pension, which again is another. Um, I'd like to do a full discussion on SaaS. But anyway, um, it sort of leads us on to. To the funding side, um, the opportunities that could come up via pension schemes is uh, there's quite a lot of, of opportunity there, isn't there? Really, in the fact that it's it can be cheap money, really, um, and sort of paying yourself back rather than lenders. 
the only grey area is is this is the point at which it becomes residential, and I still don't truly know because I'm not you know it's not it's not I'm not an expert in SAS pensions. If you're converting, if it's buying it as commercial and you're converting it to a mixed use scheme, um, so you're still retaining some commercial, say downstairs, and the rest is flats above. Uh, I think you're generally all right to retain that building. Um, okay. If you're converting it fully to residential, then it's basically at the point where you've started works or executed the planning for that. Um, I think that's at the point where you really, that you're not really allowed to own it in a pension anymore. The only thing is, and obviously you, you'll experience this from from what we're doing with you, but um, the difficult part is the SAS takes a first charge over the property, and therefore you cannot take additional borrowing. I mean, you can. You can take second charge mezzanine finance, but it's very expensive. Um, To get better sort of rates, they need to take the first charge. Therefore, you need to clear the SAS off because they've already got the first charge. So it leads us on to the types of funding, really, that we can structure it. So the difficult part of a commercial property without planning is it's quite difficult to fund if you look at it from a lender's perspective, there's, there's obviously quite a lot of risk for both you as the buyer that planning could never be granted. And there's quite a risk for the lender that planning is never granted and they're stuck with this commercial unit that they don't know what to do with. Um, so they'd like to see where, where we fund a commercial property without planning. It's that it comes down to experience and what we've touched on already. Like you said, you wouldn't go in and do a commercial conversion straight away because A, it's a big jump up from a, a property strategy, but also from a lending point of view, they're looking at, okay, this person's done one or two small house flips and now they've just bought this massive nightclub, you know, and it's like, you know, no planning and there's no experience there. They've not gone to a planning consultant or anything like that because they're not used to having to do that. From them, there's too much risk um, compared to perhaps a commercial that's got planning in place. Um so that makes it difficult, but rough numbers um, with development finance. Again, it, it's it's so much on a case by case basis, but I tend to say work between sixty or sixty five percent day one that they'll give you towards the purchase, and then they'll they'll fund a hundred percent of the build costs. I.e., you know, again, Jim's experience with this, but you, you you do a certain amount of works, and then you invoice for the the work that you've done, and then. A PMS will, will come out and visit and then you'll it's almost like they'll refund the work that you've done that will allow you to do the next stage is, is how it's best described really. I always find the biggest advantage with development funding is the valuation they, they sort of give you the GDV vigour which you know really helps cement that what you've worked out is, is right I don't know if you feel the same from the ones you've done just gives you that added yeah, confidence. Definitely, yeah, yeah. If you if you you know got a proper RICS valuation, you know, with an NGDV figure in mind, um, yeah, it gives it gives you so much more confidence that that project, yeah, it's actually going to work. Um, yeah. You know, the only thing that might affect that GDV is if the market dramatically changes, or you know, if your finish of the end product is is either terrible or higher higher um, quality. That may that may be improved as well, but yeah, def- definitely, it's it's a great um, great thing to have. Um, yeah. Not a very nice yeah. feeling, which you know, Nick, when you have to pay for two valuations on the same project. 
Um, <laughs> but uh, that's another story. I'm sure you won't mind us talking about it, but that's where the where we've touched on with the commercial element being involved. I think yeah. there was there was always. I mean, pre-COVID, it wasn't too much of an issue because um, although the high street demand for commercial property is dying, there's still there is still some demand for commercial property. Whereas now they're suspecting that there's going to be a lot of businesses, you know, not survive this, which you can see really. You know, once the furlough scheme ends, a lot of businesses are going to be if they're not trading back to full capacity, they're going to be really struggling. And therefore, if you if you as an investor have got this commercial unit, a it's not good for you because it's going to be sat empty, and b it's not good for the lender because they're thinking right, you know, this is a big chunk of their income each month how are they going to support the loan that's where it's you know the commercial element is becoming a bit difficult which um which jim has obviously experienced firsthand it's it's hard to give a definitive way of how to structure finance for this with commercial conversions because you know there's there's getting the SAS involved so if we if we break down um what you've done for the nightclub if you don't mind obviously for you like this the sas has bought the nightclub because it's a it's a full commercial unit there's the planning's not in place yet um yeah. and as a sas you know they don't necessarily need to see that in place because they're happy to lend on commercial units and um so you know the sas has, has purchased it you're going to wait for planning it and at the point their planning is approved there's going to be a an uplift in value of the property you'd hope because you know the planning is going to be worth a bit, and also it's going to take it to a a, um, a residential. You know, planning is going to be approved. That a development funder is going to be able to step in and say, right, let's get a new valuation done. They're going to give a GDV value, and they'll then base the lending against that, which will give enough to clear off the SAS money and then start again as a fresh unit, as if planning was in place from the start. So that's where. SAS funding can become really powerful because it allows you to buy commercial property where you don't have to worry. You do have to worry, but you don't have to worry from a lending point of view as and when the, the planning might be approved because SAS funding is cheap. And it's not like you're on a commercial bridge where you're paying 1% a month and you're thinking, Christ, this is really adding up. Actually, you're only paying your SAS, which in essence, you're paying yourself really anyway. So when people talk about the power of SaaS, I think that's where it's it's a massive, massive bonus. Um, the other thing that lenders are really looking at is experience, and again, we've we've touched on experience, and there's you know there's ways around it in the fact that you could, and again, Jim's touched on it, is JVing with people with with experience, you know, yeah. um, but those those that have got the experience, you need to you need to sit down and create a CV almost of of what you've done. The numbers before and after pictures that's something i always always go on about with my clients is you know build that portfolio cv and it just adds a lot more of a professional image when you go for for, for future funding um the ones that get they get approved by credit a lot quicker come to me with almost like a like a pitch back almost of of this is what we've done Here's what it looks look like. Here's all the numbers. Here's the team that we use. You know, they might not necessarily be um, developers themselves, but they go, right, this is the project manager we use from this company. These are the builders we use from this company. These are the schemes they've done before. As long as you have a full image, you know, 
we all know in business, it's not necessarily what you know, it's who you know and the image that you portray. So you can piggyback off a lot of people's experience. And this is where I, this is what I say to people, you know, they come to me and they're like, I've got this awesome project, I've got the money, but I haven't done them before. And it's like, well, you know, JV with your builder. I know that's a structure you've done a lot of. And you're right as well, when you get to these kind of lenders, and this is obviously what you specialise in more, is the kind of quirky, um, more complex deals, is you're not just going, I want funding, and you're clicking the buttons and the boxes in a normal buy-to-let mortgage. You're, you know, you're going to someone and speaking to them about this specific project and talking them through it, and you're almost trying to sell it to them. Um, yeah, you know, so you've got to think, how do you come across to them to give them money. Imagine it. It's almost like if you if you go into a in, into the old school banks where you've got a physical bank manager. You go, oh, Mr. Bank Manager, I want to set up my bakery, and this is what I've got. These are my prices. This is what I want to do. And you know, yeah. if you get the buy-in, you you know, you're more likely to get the money. Well, I'm not here to blow my own trumpet, but using a broker, you're you're actually piggybacking off the trust they've got with the lender. We you know we've placed plenty of deals with development funders. You've already got that relationship with an individual there where they've known the previous deals you've done you go to them and say look this is the deal I've got I know the person that's doing it they might not have done this much before this exact type deal before but they've done these these and these and I know they'll deliver they'll almost turn around and go okay you know you know we've known you a long time we trust that you where you're coming from and that and that's where it comes down to the the individual to create that CV as well to present to their broker and kind of say look you know, it might, you know, everyone's going to, everyone strives to succeed the next step. If you came to me and was like, oh, I want to build six houses and I've never done it before. You'd be like, okay, you know, take a step back. But if they came to me and was like, I've done two and now I want to build six, you know, a common sense approach to sit down and look at it and go, at the end of the day, it's the same process. It's just a bigger scheme. But the, the process itself is is pretty much the same. Um, and that's that's the that's what that's what the experience is, and it's also the experience of what type of project you've done. So, like like you, for yourself, you've pretty much stuck at refurbs, haven't you? You've not really done new builds. Not really. I mean, I could I could justify and say we've done you know two story extensions, which for all yeah. intents and purposes are yeah. new builds. Um, but you're right. I've not got a plus up plot of land yet, and done a new build from ground up. I suppose a lender might look and go, actually, you haven't done a new build yet, but you know. No, you've had experience in other areas. It's a case of playing around with the experience you've got and making it work. Yeah. You know, I've, I've the advantage of us working with Jim closely and, and we work quite closely together is the fact that I've got clients who might struggle with the experience, but they work with Jim and he and get his team in to do the projects, and then that allows them to get the funding. Um, and that's where yeah. we've we've collaborated before because you know you're almost piggybacking on on Jim's experience to, to overcome that really. And at the end of the day, it's good for you because you know, you can project manager the case and, and do the, the works and it works well. For you, you've worked over the last two and a half, three years to build that power team, to get it right to where it is now. And, and it's, it's only right and justified that you should then charge for that privilege for people to have because finding a project manager a site manager you know any joe blogs you know where would you start it's not even just finding the people it's having the knowledge about how to work with them and manage them as well do you see a lot of people want to project manage their own property 
project. I do. Uh, yeah, I mean, I've I've seen it where I went to quote for a job beginning of the year, um, and they said, "Oh, the, the exact words, oh, it doesn't fit in my budget." And I go, "That's fine. Um, what can we do to alter the project to make it fit that works for you?" Um, and they said, "Well, they can, we can't alter it. We need to do it for this price. We need to do that." I said, "Well, I can't physically help you because it's not doable." So they yeah. they try and project the manage themselves, and they're still on the project because they've been learning as they go, which is fine. Yeah. But yeah. they've got themselves in a pickle with it, um, and it's probably cost them more money now. But then by the time they've you know paid extra bridging fees, they've paid extra for mistakes they've made. Um, you know, so that's interesting. But um, I mean, one thing I will say on bigger commercial conversions is, you know, you're having to get involved with a lot more technical stuff as well. So liaising with a lot of people. If you don't have a project manager and you're trying to do it yourself, you know, you're liaising with your architect, building control, structure engineer. Um, you might have an M&E designer. Um, you might have an interior designer to help you with layouts, like electrical layouts, furniture, all that stuff. Um, you know, you've got your build team, different aspects of that. You, you know, you've mentioned, Nick, about a PMS, which is a project, mon project yeah. monitoring surveyor. Um, and don't be underestimated how much information they ask for. Um, yeah. Because, you know, it's not just a case of coming in and go, yeah, it's all great, here's your money. You have to justify different stages of the project. You need to know if you're 50% through your first fix. You need to know, um, you know, where the the value in the project is. And you need to, there's a, there's a lot of stuff that goes on and it's very time consuming. And that's what people yeah. forget. It is time consuming to do all this. We just had it on a project where, you know, it's slightly bigger. We've had to notify the HSE as well, which is a um, health and safety executive because it's that level of project. Um, so we have to get involved with that as well and make sure everything's up to regulations on site and you're applying by the CDM regulations and blah, yeah. blah, blah. It's, there's a lot of stuff to do. And if, if you want a project manager, it great, but be, be prepared to put the time and effort in. Um, and if you're not qualified really to do it or don't have the knowledge, just get someone else to do it. You know, if, if you want to be an investor, be an investor. Don't be a project manager. You, you're willing to hire a, a brickie, but but you're not willing. I always I always say to people with the project management side is you, yeah. If you could learn to do it yourself, but you're always going to be on the back foot. It's, you're going to react rather than be proactive with it. Like for you, you know what stage is to do is to bring the interior designer in, for example. You know that this this week of this project, I'm going to bring them in. Whereas for, for someone that's new, it might be they get to that point and they think, ah, oh, okay, now I need the interior designer, but she's booked up for the next three weeks. So it delays the project for another three weeks. And it's it's things like when the PMS turns up and they, and they start asking you questions, you know, that's, that's another reason why lenders want the experience because... At the end of the day, if they turn up and, and ask you a question, you're there like, well, uh, I don't know, I don't know. It just it just has such a negative impact on everything, all parts of the project. But he won't disagree with this, is that you'd be happy for someone to tag along with you and learn, probably, throughout the process. Yeah. Um, you know, if someone pays your fee and then says, look, do you mind if I sort of work with work for it with you you know you're not gonna have a problem with that really are you it's just you no know. no not at all i'm more than happy to share experiences and i mean i mean i mean another thing to know i mean i'm not a qualified project manager yes i've done parts of it but i i actually hire a full-time project manager who works for yeah. us um yeah. 
and I don't know what we do without him because we need yeah. his level. You know, he's he's trained and he's got his qualifications as a project manager, so he can do these certain aspects. Um, yeah. You know, he's worth his weight in gold. Um, hope he's not listening. <laughs> don't want to get the big head. But um, yeah. yeah, it's uh, no, he is. He's great. And the thing with project management as well is sometimes people say, "What do you actually do as a project manager?" And it's it's hard to define one specific thing because it's anything that comes up in the project you get involved with. You're basically yeah. pulling it all together and trying to see it through to completion. You're just the catalyst, really, aren't you? That's all it is. On the bigger projects where you need specialists in those areas, you need to have your joiners in at the right time. You need to have your plumbers in at the right time. It's pointless having a joiner come in and be like, oh, I can't do anything because, you know, the plaster is not done on time. You know, it's that whole step by step. And then, and again, if, if you've never done that sort of project before, you're relying on these trades to pretty much do it for you. And those that are in the trades that have been doing it a long time, they're not going to do that. No. They're, they're going to walk in on a project and, and say, right, you know, you need to tell me in a week in advance when you want me or, you know, else I'm going to be on another project and this, that and the other. So like you say, it's, it's, that experience you, you literally the difference is money can buy it because you can just bring someone in to do it yeah i mean at the same time as well i mean you've got your kind of what i call your project management and the construction team on the other side is the construction team really should be organizing themselves on who's being when but it's, it's you to know that the work they're doing is to specifications and yeah. is to the actual stuff you've agreed to and you know how do you know what if they've done uh, something, if they've done it, if they put steels in, how do you know they put them in right and they put the slate underneath and they put them on blue bricks or pad stones or whatever it means? You, you, you don't know that if you're not a builder um, and you learn that through experience and knowledge. We've had so many incidences and so many things we've had to catch up on people with and, you know, people invoicing us for stuff that hasn't been done or that, you know, we, we've had it, we work on price work a lot with stuff where we price per square meter and, I think someone put an extra 30% on top of what they'd actually done. And if we hadn't measured it, we'd have just paid them. But I, yeah. you know, my project manager actually me physically measured what they've done compared to what they've asked for the invoice for. We said, well, no, you, you're completely and utterly wrong. Um, so yeah, you're right. People always will try and catch you out. Let alone someone never doing it before, but also the fact that they're probably working full time as well and think they can do a project manager at the same time. It's not yeah. possible. Yeah leading on to um the exit sort of um property you know i'm assuming you would adapt the the exit depending on where the property is located the, the type of tenant similar again to buy refurbish refinance you know you've got to have that exit lined up way in advance before you even look at the property really yeah yeah you have you have um there is a little bit of an aspect of you know architectural um right you know, space planning, you know, working out what you can fit in where, like you might do duplexes in an area rather than just flat apartments, or you might go, well, actually, I'm going to have a HMO rooms here, but do some studios as well. Um, so there's a mixture of what works in terms of, and it depends on, it depends on your architect, because you, you also might find that an architect will prefer doing flats than doing HMOs. So they, they might have a preference without you even yeah. telling them. You could really overdevelop a site and do extensions and loft conversions and add an extra floors on to increase your GDV so big. But then you've also got to look at, great, then you've got to get more funding, more money. The project's going to take a longer time. Do you want to yeah. do that or do you want to 
quicker in and out project. I suppose it might affect the tenant demand as well. You know, if you're living in a building of a HMO, it could be a 12 bed or with all these extensions, it could be a 20 bed. Like you say, people have actually got to live there and live together. Yeah, exactly. You, you might think, well, great, I could do that. I could risk going to planning. I could risk putting six months on my project um, timeline to do all that work. But it could be a year before I actually start getting that money back in. So yeah. is it worth yeah. doing that or is it worth doing a six-month project and get my money back in after six months? Mm. Um, you know, you might have investors on board who it doesn't work for either. They want to quicken it out. Yeah. Um, there's, there's so many different things to kind of think about. And really, it's up to your own decisions to, to, to factor in. But yeah, there's a, there's a lot a lot of things there. And that's touching back on again where, yeah, it is commercial to resi in terms of, you know, what the actual property is. But you've still got to look at it like a business in the fact that any business that needed a large amount of capital to get it started, it's like, how quickly am I going to get that back? Is it worth me putting an extra... 10 grand on marketing or whatever is similar in the in the sense that this is you know you're creating a a, a large hmo that is going to be a business if you think right this extension is going to cost me an extra 100 grand but it's only going to give me an extra four rooms which is only going to give me 10 grand a year extra income you know it's going to be 10 years to make that worthwhile is that is that business viable all those sort of things are completely different to just converting it to a an a a standard house where actually adding a another bedroom really does add a lot of value and and if you're just looking to sell then it's a lot easier but it is a completely different ball game isn't it really yeah yeah definitely we've touched on commercial valuations and, and things like that in the past and it's such a gray area but you usually find you know as we've touched on with with commercial properties being converted to a commercial style residential if you put it that way you, you're going to get commercial valuations you know there's no way the way I look at it is if if someone goes to your property and it's quite easily can be converted back to a house that looks exactly the same as every other on the street you're probably going to get a bricks and mortar valuation because if things go tits up that's all they're going to do but if they go and look at a, a nightclub and think it's it's you know a 15 bed HMO and they think well there's no way ever this is going to get converted back to a house it's it's a commercial unit and that's how they're going to value it um, and that can be, that can vary, you know, whatever the multiplier is in the area, but it's usually a, between like eight and ten, isn't it? Roughly, as a commercial style valuation, and that's just annual income times a multiplier. But that's that's the that's the advantage of commercial conversions because once you've exited, there's probably a lot more opportunity to pull all your money out of those type of deals, aren't there? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, like I said at the beginning, you've got more equity build-up or profit in the deal than you know on a smaller project another thing to mention is again going back to why you shouldn't just jump into a big commercial conversion out of nowhere is you've got to, you've got to think a lot of these projects could take 12 months um yeah. you know quite easily yeah. uh, more they could take less but you got to think well what are you living off in those 12 months have you got cash flow to cover you and if you get a five grand problem that crops up have you got money in the bank to solve mm. that problem the last thing you want is to be on your breadline when you're doing a project like this because problems will arise, things will happen. You've got to be prepared for it. It's not just uh, five, six hundred quid like it would be on a small flip. 
it's five, six grand. Well, hopefully that's, uh, that's covered a fair bit of, of commercial conversions off. Um, so that, you know, there's a lot of added risk, but there's a hell of a lot of added potential to be had in, in commercial conversions. One of the big yeah. things I like about them, as well as in being individual projects, is I always think, well, for example, if I buy a unit and I convert to 10 apartments, um, I'm, I'm focusing on one project then, and I get 10 different units out of it, 10 different incomes, um, yeah. if, you, if you're buying a holding, that is. Um, whereas if you're doing a buy to that property and another buy to that property, you're going to have to do 10 different projects. Okay, they're quick in and out, but... Do you want to be doing 10 small ones or one big one? You know, for yeah. me, I like doing bigger ones because you can kind of get bigger quicker. Um, yeah. More risk, more reward, isn't it? And perhaps, you again, you might agree or disagree, but if you've got one building and one problem crops up, it's one cost to fix it. Whereas if it's across 10, it still costs the same because, it you know, if it, if it needs gas putting into the property... It either needs gas putting into one property or it needs gas putting into 10. It's probably going to cost the same amount to put it in one as it is to do each one, if you know what I mean. One big one and it is to do 10 small ones kind of thing. So, But then some people might say, I'd rather spread the risk and do it over 10 rather than one big one. Yeah, yeah you're right. And then, you know, you have people do a mixture and people build up to it. And it's yeah. all about your personal circumstances, isn't it? I mean, you know, for me, I... I prefer commercial conversions we're, we're looking to do commercial conversions obviously with you but um both you and i have got businesses also in the background with that cash flow you know it's not like we're living off the money that we'd be investing we are investing as a plus to go on top of what we already have as a side business yeah and that's similar to you um because it's sort of it's famine and feast, isn't it, really? Yeah, yeah. at the end, you could have this big payday and think, yeah, that's awesome. But, you know, you might have rocked up 10 grand's worth of debt in the past six months because you've had to live on it. So, yeah, thanks for that. Um, hopefully, there's been a lot of added value and um, you've got our contact details. Obviously, anyone listening wants to discuss commercial conversions further or have any questions following it, just uh, find us on email, phone, Facebook, whatever it is. Uh, and both of us will be more than happy to uh, help you out. Yeah, definitely. And uh, we'll catch you in the next episode. Great stuff. Thanks, everyone. This is the Entrepreneur Academy. If you have a question, use the hashtag the Entrepreneur Academy.